dangerous because even the because even the fast was already over. That fast, by the way, is the Day of Atonement. So we're looking at mid-September. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceived that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only for the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And spend the winter there. It's nice to know that even then people were wintering in Phoenix. Verse 13. And when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were dr- driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called uh, Kada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on uh, Cyrus, or Citrus, they uh, lowered the g- gear and they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So simply to summarize, they set out. Uh, Paul says it's ill-advised to go. That was good warning. Uh, everyone knew that, that by mid-September it was quite dangerous. In fact, by, the, by, by mid-November there would be no sailing on that uh, place at all from mid-November to mid-March. And so he gave the warning. They did not heed it and they continued on. And we can see now that they're in this huge storm and wondering if they're going to be able to live. And they have really no hope of that at all. Then verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I suspect he meant that in the best possible way. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So you understand what he's saying. He's saying that that everyone's going to live, but the ship is going to be lost. Verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And, And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul is saying to them that everyone's going to live, but again, the ship will be lost. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors and from, from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat, that is the lifeboat, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, from the bow, 
Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go out. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God. In the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on the planks or or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. Now the first question, as I've read this over and over, is, Why did Luke put it here? Why did he take so much space in a very limited space, a very limited amount of writing space of a history of the church? What is so significant about this? Wasn't anything more significant going on in the life of the church about which Luke should write? Now, Luke had a personal interest. There's a we in this story. And so Luke is here, so he's in the midst of this. He'd been with Paul. So this is part of his own experience, part of his own life. He went through this, and no doubt it made a deep impression on his life to be in such a tremendous, what looked like tragedy, and yet to be saved from it, to to go through weeks of, of being in the midst of this great storm, not eating, uh, wondering if you're going to live thinking you're not, hearing this word of promise and seeing it all come to fruition. So no doubt a deep impression upon him. Not only that, but it's significant in the life of this one whose name is Paul. He's on his way to Rome. That is very significant. God has promised that he's going to get to Rome. And the question for us since about chapter 21 is, how is that going to happen? Since, since Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem, how is God going to providentially oversee this whole work so that Paul will end up in Rome? And what does all that mean? We'll pick that up next Sunday. But, but still, that's significant here. This is a, a key piece of that. Because if we had heard that there was a big shipwreck and Paul still got to Rome, we'd wonder, how did all that work out? But there's something here, I think, that's helpful for us to see in the midst of all that, in the midst of how it is that God works. Because what we see here is not only a promise of God to save, that is, to keep alive all these people, but also God giving the means through which they're going to be able to do that. Notice just a couple of things. In, in verse, verses 21 through, through 26, this is that piece where after they're hopeless and they, they feel helpless, uh, they have no hope at all, uh, Paul says that he's heard this word from an angel, an angel coming, a messenger coming from the God he loves, from the God he worships, from the God he serves, saying this to him, verse 23, 
Uh, verse 24, the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. And so here's the promise. He's telling all these people that they're going to make it. That's true. And this word comes from God. This isn't something Paul made up. This is something that comes directly from God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm thinking, I get this word from God that I'm going to be safe and I'm going to live, I might think, then it really doesn't matter what I do from here on out. I'm irrelevant. I don't have to participate in this at all. God says I'm going to be saved. I'm going to go up on the deck. I'm going to cross my legs. I'm going to grab a book and, uh, and a cup of coffee and everything will be fine from here on out. It really doesn't matter. Uh, the promises come from God. But then, interestingly enough, we just go down this passage not too far, and there's a group of men who see a lifeboat. And it makes great sense to them to get on the lifeboat. Now, not everybody can fit on the lifeboat. But if I'm there, I'm going, okay, I'll get on the lifeboat. God's going to save everybody. I'll just feel more comfortable in the lifeboat. Uh, And so this is a good way to make this happen. But notice what happens. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And I'm thinking, well, what's the deal? You said, I'm going to be saved. Now you're dictating how. You're not only saying what the end result is going to be, but you're now saying that there's something about how we're supposed to get there the means by which we're going to get there. And then later on in verse 33, he says that they're to eat because they need their strength. Why? They're going to be saved. Why can't they be saved with or without food? I have a sneaking suspicion, if this were me anyway, if I'd been in the midst of this ship, I might not be wanting to eat. Uh, It had been tossed and turned and I might be a bit hungry, but then again, (laughs) my stomach may not be in its proper position. And so, but but Paul says, no, you need the strength, so eat. This is the means by which you're going to be strengthened. This is is good for you. You're not going to be saved unless you eat. You're going to die unless you eat. But but Paul, you said we're all going to be saved. Eat. That's the means by which you're going to be saved in the midst of this. And then we see even God providentially coming uh, into play in this situation, because once they ran aground, it's in the minds of the soldiers to kill all the prisoners, because they're responsible for them, to kill all the prisoners so that they don't escape. And, and the centurion, however, for whatever reason, moved by God through the, through, the, through the just very ordinary means of probably his gratefulness to Paul, his affection perhaps even for Paul in the midst of this and getting to know him, he says, no, 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 for the sake of Paul, all the prisoners will live. And so everyone lives. The ship is destroyed. Everyone lives. They stay together. They eat together. God providentially intervenes. And even some of them, by staying with the ship, are saved because once the ship uh, runs aground, they grab the planks of the ship, and the ship itself is the very thing that keeps them alive. Now, what do we take from this? Well, I think at least this. There's a number of ways we could go with this if you listen to... 10 sermons on Acts chapter 27. You may get 10 different looks at this, but but this is at least one thing, I think, from which we can grab. Because we often struggle with this whole notion of God's decrees, that he decrees an an end that's going to take place. And then we must realize that God not only decrees the means, or the ends that will happen, the thing, that the result that will come, but he also ordains the means by which that will come about. And we must grab a hold of those means for that end to come about. 
Uh, we see it here. The, the promise was you'll all be saved. The means, stay with the ship. The promise, you'll all be saved. The means, eat something. Uh, the, the promise, you will be saved. Stay with the ship. It's going to run aground. When it breaks up, grab part of the ship. It will lead you to safety. It will float you where you need to be so that you can live. God, the ends and the means. That's not all that unusual. A coach may be able to walk into his team, knowing his team, knowing the game that they're about to play, and be able with a great deal of confidence, not the same confidence that a sovereign God can speak, but with a fair amount of confidence that says, team, we're going to win this game. But then he could also say, but if you don't stick to the game plan, we're going to lose. Now, he knows his team well enough to know that they'll stick to the game plan. He knows that the game plan is good. He knows the opponent. Therefore, he knows that they'll win. But, but both statements are true. We're going to win, but if we don't stick to the game plan, we're going to lose. A professor, knowing the students in a particular class and knowing the course, could walk in and say, you're all going to pass. But then he could also say with the same amount of confidence that if you don't come to class... And if you don't read the book, and if you don't study, you won't pass. Both those things are true. But but knowing the class, knowing those students, he could say with a measure of confidence, you're really going to pass. But, 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 But they can't just blow off class. They can't not read the book. They can't not study. But he knows they will. So both statements thus are true. And now Paul says to them, You're all going to be saved, but you've got to stay with the ship. It's that promise, those means. And and the reason that this comes to at least my mind and the mind of many others when we read this chapter is because that's very much of our life in God. He, He tells us, those of us who belong to him, that first of all, this work of salvation was his, that it started in his mind and in his heart, and he directed his attention to us. And in the mystery of of our salvation, we read that, that our salvation is God's plan, even down to the specifics. For instance, we read in Ephesians in chapter 1, this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we get this sense that before we came to God, he came to us. Before we believed in him, he called us to himself. Before we trusted him, he's the one who chose us to be his. And and, and that astounds us. But yet we could say, well, if this was God's deal, then it really doesn't matter anything about me. But it does matter. It matters a great deal. Those he's chosen must believe. It's the response. And must follow after him. We read this in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 29. Um, For those he whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the very work of God. In fact, Paul writes even um, more clearly, I suppose, in Second Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, he writes, But we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth 
To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that, yes, this really is God's work. And, And not only that, he gives us a great sense of assurance. He says, since this work is his, then then you truly are saved. We get that from various passages in Scripture. For instance, in John chapter 3, that classic uh, verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He says, if you believe in him, anyone who believes in him, everlasting life is, in fact, yours. That that great sense of of assurance. In, In John chapter 6, In verse 35, we read this. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. John chapter 10, verse 27, we read this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's saying, listen, since it's my work and you're in me, those who believe in me will never perish. It's done. You'll never perish. You're justified in my, my sight. I've declared you uh, to be righteous. Uh, Romans and, and chapter 5, verse 8. Paul writes this. He says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received uh, reconciliation. We get this sense that it's done, that God has made this promise to us. I made you to be mine. You've believed. You will not perish. You have everlasting life. Now the question for us is, now what? Does that mean that we just simply, you know, go on the deck, cross our legs, grab our book, grab our cup of coffee, and watch the world go by? That, that, that's it now. It, we don't, it really doesn't affect us in any other way other than knowing at the end of time, at the end of our time, we'll be with him. That's it. There's something else, though, that comes to us in Scripture. For instance, in, Mark, or in, in Matthew, in chapter 22, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what is to come, most especially the persecution that will come. And in verse 22 he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he, Jesus is saying there's something about enduring with him that's necessary. And I'd want to say, but, but, but Jesus, you, you said, I'm secure. Why do I need to endure? Oh, why can't I fall away? Why, well, what does it really matter about me? You've said this is a done deal. You said this is over. He says, no, no. There's something here you really must endure. In, in Luke, in chapter 21, verse 17, Jesus puts it in a similar way, similar context. He says, you'll be hated by all for my namesake. 
but not a hair of your head will perish. I like that. So that's, don't worry about it. Similar kind of thing that Paul was saying. Don't worry, you're not going to die. You'll be safe. You'll live. Verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your life. So it isn't just casual. It's, it's there's something here. Yes, the promise has been made, but, but, but there's something here uh, that leads us on. That passage I read out of Second Thessalonians that gives such great assurance. Second Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, that is, the Spirit set you apart for this, and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word, or by our letter. He says, all right, you're safe. Now here's how you're to live. More pointedly, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 6. He writes, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought I was secure. What's all this if I hold fast? What's this holding fast stuff? I thought it was done. Why am I required to hold fast? Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 3. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's the endurance. He says, yes, it's done. Now hold fast the confidence that original confidence, hold it firm to the end. It isn't crossing your legs. It isn't just watching the world go by. There's something to all of this that engages us and includes us in the midst of all of this. In chapter 6, in an even more scary fashion, he tells us, you know, don't fall away. Don't fall away. In chapter 6 later, he tells us to, 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 to make certain that we uh, imitate those who have gone before us. My my point is this, that God has made a promise of our security and safety. He's given us assurance of that. But we mustn't think then that it doesn't include us because God has not only ordained the end to that, but he's also ordained the means by which we are to get there. And so the question for us is, what's the ship that we hold on to? Well, it's Christ. He says, don't leave Christ, don't fall away. How silly it would be, though I've heard people say this, how silly it would be to say, well, I, I believed in Jesus at this particular time in my life, but I don't believe anymore, really. I don't really follow him anymore, really. I, I'm really not uh, uh, one who would be called a disciple of Jesus, but, but still I'm saved. Or, or for others to say, you know, they made a statement of faith, a commitment to, to Christ when they were 22, and, and now they've fallen away, but, but, but they're still, they're, they're really saved. And you have to ask the question, is that what Jesus meant by enduring to the end? What did he mean by that? Is there really assurance for those who aren't hanging on? And so the question is, by what do we hang on? What are these means that God uses to enable us to continue on in the faith? In the history of the church, we've identified by the scripture 
various means of what are called means of grace, these things that, that, that enable us to receive grace that we may continue on uh, enduring. And, and this won't come as a shock to you as I list various means of grace, various things that ought to be true of us. And if not, we're in great peril. Things of which we, we take advantage of, we, we, we pour ourselves into, that we may receive the very grace of God. The first, and again, I, I trust you could, most of you could identify this one and say, yeah, that would be the one, would be the very word of God. You remember, as Moses is speaking to the people in Israel, he's saying, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And by that he's saying, I, I know what you want. He, he, they'd just been through this wilderness experience and, and now Moses is describing all of that. And you remember they, they ran out of bread and, and they complained and God gave them manna. But he says, it isn't bread. I can speak bread. <laughs> I can make bread happen. You are to live in obedience to me. You live by every word that comes out of my mouth. You live by trusting in me. And so when Moses finishes the book of Deuteronomy, he says to the people, these words are not idle words, they're your life. Out of these words come life to you. Joshua would know that uh, as he was being called. God gave him these words. He says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. That is, that you from this word have wisdom, and that wisdom will cause you to be successful. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And so he says to Joshua, follow after this word. It's, it's the very means through which God's grace comes to you. And the psalmist says in Psalm 19 that this word of God is perfect. This word of God revives the soul. This word of God makes the simple wise in the very things of God. In Psalm 119, we read that this this, this word, if hidden in our hearts, uh, will keep us from sin. We read that this word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If we really want to know how to walk with God, and if we're really going to be able to walk with God, if we're really going to be able to endure to the end, we need this word. This very word is that powerful word of God that, that sends Satan running. You remember that when Jesus was in the wilderness, it was the word of God that he used. He said, but it is written. And at each turn, Satan was defeated because he followed the very word of God. You remember Jesus speaks of this truth that we receive from the word of God, for it reveals God to us. This very truth is that which sets us free. Verse 31 in John chapter 8, Jesus writes, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
how often that little expression is used out of context. Because Jesus says, this is my word that sets you free. Because what it's setting you free from is sin. What it's setting you free from is your own pride. What it's setting you free from is your own selfishness. What it's setting you free from is all that stuff that's keeping you away from God. But this word comes and it speaks truth to you. It convicts of sin. It tells of the truth of Christ. And it moves in that direction in such a way that we're able to hear this word and be freed from sin, forgiven from it, pardoned and declared righteous by, by God himself. And thus we realize that, that it's this truth that sets us free. In John chapter 17, uh, Jesus says, verse 17, Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. That thing which sets us apart, that thing that makes us gods, is this very word of God. In John chapter 20, John says this very word brings eternal life. In Romans, in chapter 10, verse 17, we read that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There is no faith unless we hear this word. This very word brings faith to us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It, it's power. It's not just information, but it brings, it brings the very power of God to us. In fact, one of the most penetrating uh, passages concerning the scripture is in Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12. No, verse 11, let me begin there. The author of Hebrews puts it like this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And this rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about is the very presence of God. You remember, in the creation, uh, the first six days, there's this refrain that says, in the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day, and third day and fourth day. When it comes to the seventh day, God rests. And there's no end. And so we speak of entering into God's rest. We're speaking of entering into the very presence of God. And here's how we do that. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, the very word of God pierces us to the, to the places where no one else, nothing else can go. That's the very point of all this. And it, 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 it illuminates for us unbelief. And it illuminates for us the lies that sin brings to us so that we can continue to endure. Because there's so much that comes at us that's simply a lie. The lie that says if, if, you, if you cheat on this test, it will be better for you. The lie that says that if, if your marriage is unhappy, simply divorce. The lie that says if you're pregnant and, it's un, and, and you're not happy about that, get an abortion. The lie that says that if you lie, things will go better for you. Uh, the lie that says if you... Uh, marry an unbeliever, you'll be happy. That'll be all right. All those lies that come to us that keep us from enduring to the end, uh, the, the scripture exposes and says, there it is. Don't be deceived by that. And brings us strength. And the summary passage, of course, is in Second Timothy in chapter 3 where the apostle writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, the man of God may be equipped, may be competent, equipped for every good work. We must feed on this word. It enables us to endure to the end. 
if we miss this, it's as if we haven't taken food for our strength and we'll shrivel up and die. And so God can say, Jesus can say to us, you're secure, but you must have the word in you, else you'll die. Both things are true. The means to life is the very word of God. Prayer, means of grace to us. It's our way of fellowshipping, if you will, with with God. It's our way we communicate to him. He speaks to us by his word, but when we pray, we're speaking to him. When Jesus' disciples ask ask him to teach them to pray, he says, say this. That is, when we pray, we're speaking. We're, We're expressing our hearts to God. And it's a means of grace. God says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And we have this great sense that, that we're to pray because, because our need is great. So Jesus would say to us, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. The apostle would say, pray without ceasing. Why? Because we're in ever need of grace. And we pray most passionately when we come up against need. When we realize how hopeless and helpless we really are. When the storm has come to such a degree that we realize we're completely out of our element, we're completely incompetent, which is how we should feel all the time, by the way. Not just when the big things happen, but it's really true for us. We're utterly dependent upon God, even at our best moments, or what we think are our best moments. In fact, those may be the times when we need Him the most, the Scripture says. When you think you're able to stand, be careful, because you're about ready to fall at that point, because... Now you're depending upon yourself increasingly. You're confident in yourself increasingly. And when you get to that point, then you're most likely to fall. You're less likely to fall when you know your hopelessness and helplessness and you're living utterly dependent upon Him and you're calling out to Him and asking Him for His help. Thus, Paul could say, pray for me that I might have boldness to speak. Because though we think of this apostle as the bold one among us, he knew his own cowardice. That there would be times when he would shy away. And so he said, pray for me that I have have boldness when I open my mouth to speak this truth. There's a sentence in Colossians in chapter 4 that in my reading recently caught me by surprise. Shouldn't have. It's underlined three times. So I've read it before, but it caught me again by surprise. Uh, Verse 12, Paul just sort of ending up his word to this church in Colossae speaks of Epaphras. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I had a professor in seminary. His name was Christy Wilson. He's now with the Lord, but he was a missions professor. And if you ask him what his work was, he would say prayer. It wasn't teaching. It wasn't evangelism. It wasn't writing. It wasn't any of all the other things that he got paid to do. But if you ask him what his work was, he said prayer. And he said, because prayer is work. It's a struggle. 
It's a struggle for our souls. It's a struggle to maintain faith. It's a struggle to maintain endurance for us and for everyone. And he was the kind of professor that when you walked into his class, he knew you because he had been praying for you because we had something at the seminary called the Facebook that had everybody's faces of all the students in, in, in the seminary. And he, he knew you from the moment you enrolled. And when I walked into his class of 120 students of, 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 for this first missions class, he said to me, hi, Bill, how are you? And how's Karen and the kids? And I didn't know who he was. But he had been praying, struggling for my own soul. Prayer is a means of grace, how we neglect, how I, how we neglect it to pray for our own maturity and that we endure. We need that. Prayer is a means of grace. The sacraments a means of grace. The very presence of God with us. Uh, we see in, in the sacraments, whether baptism or communion, we see uh, uh, God's very promise to us. Second service, I'm going to baptize. We'll see water. That should remind us of, of the cleansing blood of Christ. And it should be a, a blessing to us, the very presence of Christ here with us, even as we baptize. Uh, the very grace to parents to hear God say, I haven't forgotten about your children. Here's the promise of salvation. It's for you and for your children. For us as a congregation to realize the grace that comes to us, that to, to see this water and realize the cleansing blood of Christ, the grace that comes to us to realize that our children... Uh, are the very interest of God himself, and that we're not alone in raising them. And for even this baby that I'm going to baptize today, the grace will not be the grace of salvation until it's mixed, this promise, with faith, and the child believes. But just to know, yes, you belong, this promise is for you. And even as we come to communion, the very presence of God to remind us, to show us that, that Christ has died for us and has been raised, and that we belong to him. And even as we take those elements and we eat together, There's this sense that we're in the very presence of God and he builds up our faith. The fellowship that we have one another in the context of the church. The author of Hebrews says that we're to come together and stir one another up to good works. He said that we're to encourage each other as long as it's called today. When I got up this morning, it was today. Tomorrow it's going to be today again if tomorrow happens. And so so as long as it's called today, we need each other to encourage each other. It's a means of grace. We cut ourselves off from the very fellowship of the church. We cut ourselves off from the encouragement that we need. So we can say that, yes, we're secure as believers in Christ. But if you're outside the church, if you're outside the fellowship of the people of God, you'll perish. Because the means by which we continue to endure is in the context of the body. So he says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Gifts happen when Christians come and the very gifts of the grace of God, of mercy and encouragement and help in time of need, all of that comes as we fellowship together. There's, there's grace that comes through the discipline of the church. There's grace that comes as we give and as we pour our lives into the lives of others and we give our lives for the sake of the gospel of Christ There's grace that comes to us that we will not receive unless we're doing that very thing. And so we're secure, yes, but not apart from these means. So the question is, will we grab a hold of those means? And the answer, of course, is yes, if we desire to live. Yes, if God has put put it in us to follow after him and to have his life in us. I've used this illustration before, but it's apropos this time of year. Let's say that you're a 12-year-old boy in Lawrence, Kansas, and an angel comes to you in the middle of the night and says to you, you're going to be the best basketball player in the history of Kansas basketball. 
What do you think that kid's going to do? Do you think he's just going to lay around until he enrolls at KU and then shines as a great basketball player? I don't think so. I think if a little 12-year-old boy in Lawrence, Kansas got that word at 2 o'clock in the morning from an angel, 201, he'd be lacing his sneakers. And he'd be sneaking out to the driveway to shoot hoops because that's what great basketball players do. And every time he'd make a shot, he'd think, ha ha, it's right. And every time he'd miss a shot, he'd say, good thing I'm not 18 yet. Because someday I'm going to make that shot. And that's what happens to us, you see, as believers. We hear this word that we're secure. But if that word that says you're secure means that, that, that you're just going to fall away, that you're going to forget about these things, that you're not going to pay attention to the very word of God, that you're not going to pray, that you're not going to be in fellowship, that you're not going to be obeying him and trying as God leads you to follow after him, then perhaps you really haven't heard that word. Perhaps you really haven't got that life because you see, yes, we are secure, but not apart from the life to which God calls us. And those who are secure know that that assurance and that security and that life comes only as we're fed upon his word, only as he gives us help as we pray, only as we're in the context of fellowship, only as we receive the sacraments together and look upon him. Those things aren't separated. There's means and ends, and God has ordained them both. And they're consistent with one another. Paul says, you will be saved. Stay with the ship. If you're not with the ship, you die. God says, you're saved. Believe in me. Stay with the ship. Immerse yourself in my word. Listen and follow. Pray. Receive my help. Fellowship together. Receive the gifts that come from the body to you to strengthen you and help you. Receive these sacraments that are ways to point you and bring you into the very presence of God. Obey. Walk with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that this would all be true of us. And we'd know this assurance, and this assurance wouldn't cause us to be lazy and fat, but God would, would, would cause us to walk with Christ and lay hold of every means that he gives to us. Father, wake us up, call us back, immerse us in your word and in prayer and in fellowship and in obedience. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is this one. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, That means that He has saved us. And the one who has saved us is the Lord and we shall follow Him. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.